I'm on the line with Robert J. Robert is uh, a participant in Occupy ICE Detroit. ICE is Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And since roughly mid-June, there have been Occupy ICE actions emerging throughout the United States, uh, with the main demand being abolish Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Robert, welcome to No One's Legal Radio. Hey, thanks a ton for having me on. Robert, talk about uh, how Occupy ICE Detroit came together. On our last show here on No One's Legal Radio, we spoke with members of Occupy ICE Louisville and Portland, and Portland is where it started. Uh, the broader context, of course, was the separation of children from their families and a more general family separations policy. Um, how did that evolve to an Occupy camp starting against ICE in Detroit? So there's a there's a number of forces at work here uh, for Detroit. First of all, I think we gotta we gotta give props to Portland because they're the ones that started it all, and they were our primary point of inspiration for starting up Occupy ICE. On my end, I was working with the Families Belong Together team nationally, and I was looking to do a little bit more uh, direct action for my part because up until that point, Families Belong Together had largely just been about organizing rallies, which while they're nice, um, I, I would prefer, especially when we consider the severity of the issue, find, finding a way to take direct means at shutting this system down. So I was very attracted to this and knew uh, some of the people that were putting it together first. So uh, they asked me if I wanted to be on the team. I said I was in. I didn't quite realize I'd be this far in where we are right now. I was just thinking, yeah, I'll help out with some supply runs. But then I... Uh, Stayed up three days straight that first weekend, uh, just having too much fun at camp. And that was when we staged our first blockade where we shut down the facility for six hours. And we were able to confirm that we stopped at least three deportations because um, they, uh, some of the families approached us later on saying that, uh, you know, we, we got them at least two more weeks together. And I feel like, you know, when, when you can do that, when you can when you can actively say that you're doing the thing, you're keeping families together, uh, that, that's what told me we're exactly where we're supposed to be and doing what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, the third point is that we do have some, some of the original Occupy Detroit leadership on board. So, it, it did, so we had a, a very nice little transition from uh, the original Occupy to now we've got Occupy ICE. Robert, um the various Occupy camps and various occupations have faced varying levels of police repression, they face varying levels of vigilante action, and um, varying levels of collaboration or support from city authorities. So can you talk about those dynamics as they play out in Detroit? Yeah, uh, we've, we've had a little bit of all three of those. Um, so Let's, let's lead with a positive when we talk about um, city community participation and elected official participation. Uh, after our first blockade, what ultimately busted us up was uh, the Detroit Police Department busting out the flex cuffs and the tear gas. And um, with, uh, we, were, we were only 30 strong by hour six, so at that point we weren't able to hold the three gates. But um, the day after, I was invited onto... Uh, local radio show and the host was kind enough to give us uh to give us a couple of call-in spots there and we put out that you know detroit is supposed to be a sanctuary city and that means that the detroit police department does not have to cooperate with department of homeland security so 
we put out the city council number, we put out the mayor's number, um, and we said, hey, Detroit, help us out. Call, call your officials and let them know Detroit is a sanctuary city. Detroit Police Department should not, under any circumstances, be cooperating with ICE. So we put a little pressure on, and eventually, since that point, we our protest has not had any interaction with the Detroit Police Department at all. It's specifically been Department of Homeland Security agents that have been wrecking our campsites and trying to quash our free speech. For Department of Homeland Security, um, that's that's been our primary point of issue, and we've just had uh, a lot of negative experiences with them. At first, it wasn't as bad because they were basically just um, using the Detroit Police Department as their personal attack dogs, but now that um, that's been taken off the table, largely thanks to the people of Detroit, um, we have been coming up with Department of Homeland Security. Uh, they're ordering us to strike camp because we're on federal property illegally, which I, I think is a little rich, especially because the Department of Homeland Security is now federally illegal due to the fact that they failed their deadline day requirements. And for that matter, the people that are at the camp are all American citizens. So how can we be illegally on unused federal property? So before they used to give us like, uh, you know, an hour and a half to take down our camp, the last time they busted us up, it was a half hour. And then uh, just when we were doing our action for Kosecha on Tuesday, there was no warning. They just came in, started ripping stuff down, ripped off our canopy, um, and just like tore everything up and just threw it to the wayside and walked away. And that was like an hour and a half in. We were just there holding up signs, protesting. We weren't even blockading that day. And we found that that's very consistent with all of the other camps that this past weekend, when we were trying to do national sustained action, Department of Homeland Security also escalated their tactics. They don't give warnings. They just go in. They start wrecking people's stuff, destroying personal property, busting up camps, trying to arrest people. And when we're looking at the actions, a lot of the time, people are just exercising their First Amendment rights. There aren't even work shutdowns attached to a lot of these actions. So we're really, show, we're really seeing a lot of brute force on the Department of Homeland Security, and we're also running into a lot of situations where, for our part in Detroit, one of our protesters was hit by a car driven by private security trying to break our blockade that the DHS hired to try to help bust us up. And you can see in the videos that we have on our site, um, the, the security employee he backs up about a foot before gunning it on the accelerator to hit the protester. So it's not even like you can say it's an accident. There's a very deliberate attempt to intimidate us physically as well as psychologically. They'll like start like laying out flex cuffs on the ground, threatening us with arrest, even though we are exercising under federal and Michigan law our legal right to picket along a sidewalk. So we do have a lot of questions about just how much the First Amendment protects right now. We have a lot of questions about the legitimacy of the Department of Homeland Security as an organization, especially considering that they're just flaunting federal jud judicial mandates. So uh, we do have a lot of problems on that, and I think it only makes our point of abolishing ICE, of abolishing the Department of Homeland Security, that much stronger.
Robert, uh, you've just stated one of the main demands of these occupations, which is to abolish immigration and customs enforcement. Um, in my in my opinion, it's a reasonable demand, but it comes across to some people as a radical demand. Um, people have demanded that families be uh, brought together, that there be a uh, a regularization of undocumented people, that that there be open borders. Um, and of course, in any sort of action like this, which which aims for widespread support, there's a bit of kabuki theater going on between, I guess, one caricature would be uh, Democrat. Uh, politicians or people affiliated with the Democratic Party who maybe are a bit wary of uh, saying abolish ICE uh, will maybe tolerate it for a bit or maybe try to undermine that message. And people on the grassroots who are who are saying, well, that's the whole point of us taking these risks of blockading, of getting arrested, of getting cuffed, of getting pepper sprayed, and uh, and sometimes being on the receiving end of vigilante violence. So could you speak to uh, the demands and how that's played out politically in a, in a political context like Detroit? There is a very big split right now between progressives, radicals, and establishment Democrats. Um, right now, uh, there is a very large push uh, in the activist community, particularly in the immigrant rights community, to abolish ICE. And uh, that was one of the purposes of the June 30th Families Belong Together rally was to try to get candidates to adopt the abolish ICE mantra. So some of them and some of them embrace it. Some candidates running embraced it. Um, others incumbents like uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell, although she has been doing great work on the immigrants' right front, particularly as it relates to DHS, um, she's currently not on board with abolish ICE. Uh, it's it's a stance that scares people. I think it uh, I think it shakes uh, a lot of like certain. Certain levels of security, uh, someone who grew up in this country got used to certain systems being in place for a while. And I think people get scared when they hear the term abolition, despite its overwhelmingly positive historical connotations, just because they may have a certain amount of investment in how the federal government is currently operated. And if we start saying that we, the people, can just start hacking off entire government departments in the name of a uh, a safer and more equal world for all i think i think there's uh there's a lot of people with a lot of skin in in our current electoral politics game that are a little scared by that but uh we got our primaries coming up august 7th so we do have a lot of opportunities to do something about it because a lot of the candidates coming up that are challenging these incumbents or challenging districts handled by by republicans they're embracing the progressive mantra they're they're ready to get more radical even if they haven't said hashtag abolish ICE on like a, their campaign page's Facebook status, you're still getting a lot of rumblings that, you know, we are going to shut this entire thing down. So um, I would say I would say vote progressive. Uh, if you're in Michigan, if you can, vote Muslim. There's a lot of great Muslim candidates right now on the ballots. Robert, um, in addition to the fissure around the, the main demand of abolish ICE, there's also the fissure around tactics. Um, and you've already alluded to that in one of your previous answers, um, that in order to be effective, in order to effectively stop the deportation machine, in order to give some meaning to the demand abolish ICE, there needs to be disruption. And that means getting in the way of, of the ICE machine. And that's meant these Occupy ICE actions. That's meant... Um, 
sometimes illegal encampments, sometimes that's meant blockades, that's meant arrests. So speak to that fissure as well, the necessity of direct action in order to achieve uh, these demands and in order to oppose ICE and impose the injustices of the, uh, around immigration of the Trump administration. All right, that's a great question. So uh, let's let's just start out with the with the first part. Why why we choose direct action and why we have to? The main reason is because your only other alternative is electoral politics. Now we got those primaries coming up in August, but the general election is not until in Michigan, November sixth. That's a lot. There is a lot of in between time there, and there are a lot of people that could get hurt. There's a, lot of, there's a lot more people that could get kidnapped at the border or snatched from neighborhoods and local communities. Um, we've already had reports of, of children dying in custody or children dying from a respiratory illness contracted while they were in ICE custody. So we feel that, yes, let, let's secure our future with better political figures. But right now, we're, we're living in the midst of a humanitarian crisis, and we need to do whatever we can to stop it. And I feel like Occupy ICE has provided the blueprint for the most effective means of direct action on two fronts. One, we target Department of Homeland Security itself. We, we look at their facilities, their administrative facilities, their detention facilities. We impede the ability for their guards, their kidnappers to show up to work. And when we've been able to get people together and pull this off, it's been very successful. Portland was able to shut down their facility for two weeks. Detroit, with only 40 people the first time, shut down the facility for six hours. They canceled all of their deportation check-in appointments for the day because they simply did not have the capacity to execute those duties. The second time, we only had 15 people. That was this last Friday. We were able to shut them down again for five hours with a slight change up in tactics. Um, we weren't able to get a full cancellation of appointments for that day, but we were able to confirm that, that we did have a zero deportation day going into the weekend. And I think that might be due to our efforts because they certainly don't want to have that image of a deportation going on video. The, uh, the other side of the tactics is something that uh, Philadelphia did when they took over City Hall to... Uh, convinced Mayor Kenny to end the PARS agreement. That was an important detention contract for ICE in the region, and now it's not there. That's, uh, that's also part of the work that we're doing with COSECHA when we target the county jails in our region that have detention contracts with ICE. And if we start going after some of the local companies that have something like an accounting contract, for instance. So it feels like our occupation tactic, it's working. It's working both... Uh, when we're going after the federal agencies and when we're going after the state, local, and corporate entities that are enabling them. So we'd really encourage people to join the movement because the only thing that's been stopping us is we do have to sleep eventually, and uh, we, just, we just need more people. Robert, in, um, in doing these interviews with various Occupy ICE uh, actions and occupations across the U.S., um, there are a lot of similarities, but there's also, of course, regional peculiarities. Uh, one thing that people lose sight of is that um, the U.S. is an incredibly diverse country with, with local working class and oppressed people's struggles and what have you. Um, so I have two questions that sort of allude to that. One is about who are actually the people in detention? Uh, 
uh, one thing that people know is that a lot of people come across the border from Central America and from Mexico, uh, more recently a lot more from Central America, uh, cities like Chicago or L.A. or various large cities in Texas uh, have huge Latino populations. But uh, speak to um, who, are, who are the people being detained at the ICE facility in Detroit and the nature of migration in that area uh, right now. Detroit is rather unique in terms of our communities that are being oppressed right now by the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we, we're, we certainly have a wonderful Latinx community here, uh, but one of the things that's uh, particularly interesting about Detroit is we have the largest concentration of Muslim people living uh, within the metro Detroit area. So we do have um, a lot of Muslim and a lot of Chaldean people who are being held captive by ICE right now, in addition to uh, Latinx immigrants, in addition to African immigrants. And we do find when we look at who's being detained, who's being deported, who's being rounded up in the middle of the night, it's consistently, almost always, people of color. Every now and then they'll deport an Eastern European person too, but we we do know pretty consistently um, they they are going to be either an Arab person, a Latinx person, or an African person. Uh, that those are the major consistencies that we've that we've been able to observe. And and why why are migrants um, of various origins coming to the Detroit area uh, or in, to Michigan? Um, what what are the kinds of jobs or what are the kinds of opportunities they're seeking in that area? And and what's and what are the challenges they're facing even beyond um, being undocumented and facing deportation? The challenges in the workplace or the day to day life challenges? There is there is a lot of day to day discrimination which is absolutely ramped up since uh, Trump uh, started enabling white supremacists. So that workplace discrimination, which I'm glad you brought up, is absolutely not something to be overlooked. Uh, one of the advantages that Detroit brings to the immigrant community, uh, they can come in through Canada, uh, which which is a, a fairly helpful advantage just in itself. Um, as far as opportunities in Detroit, uh, we do still have a lot of manufacturing here, uh, so we can welcome people of unskilled trades. There's a very uh, a very vibrant and diverse food cultural scene. Um, we also have one of the most uh, fantastic medical campuses in the country, uh, the, uh, the DMC. So uh, that, that is another point of attraction for people with uh, skills in the medical field. They can find work there. Um, it also just helps that the Detroit area, there's, we just have a whole ton of wide open space. We've got room for everybody. So it's absurd to me that we would be turning anyone away instead of turning them away, throwing them in a cage, and then having Geo Group or Correctional Corporation of America profit off of their suffering. Robert, my, my last question is, is it's kind of large, so I apologize in advance. It's, it's something that probably deserves a show in, its, in and of itself, but it's a question that I think is important to ask, and just answer as best as you can and as concisely as you can. But... Um, the Detroit area, I mean, in any struggle, so here we have a struggle for migrant justice with a variety of people directly affected or not involved, but any struggle needs to link up with other struggles. And Detroit is, is an area that's resonant with social justice struggles, uh, African-American struggles. Detroit is a center of, of black culture, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Michigan is a center of working class struggles in general. It, it's the uh, prototype, I guess, of a depopulated Rust Belt area that's now trying to find its way. Um, it's an area also that, unfortunately, 
um, has had a certain attraction for the 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 bigoted uh, populist policies of of someone like Trump. So, can you speak to that reality and how that plays out in Occupy? Uh, an organ- I'm an organizer myself, so I know there are challenges, and this is a pretty young mobilization in the sense that you guys have been at it for a few weeks um, or about a month. But uh, and so there's a longer term struggle at play and other struggles that have been going on for for generations and generations. Can can, can you speak about how some of that has come together or or might come together in the current Occupy ICE Detroit action? One of the preeminent uh, racial justice issues in Michigan and Detroit in particular is uh, the battle for water rights. Uh, Flint was poisoned four years ago by the state. As more evidence comes out, we can directly confirm the state uh, did have direct knowledge of what was going to happen and chose not to act. Flint has been poisoned for four years now. Uh, We're finding that infant mortality rates are staggering in that region because of the lead content in the water. Um, One of the organizations that's a part of Occupy Ice Detroit, Great Lakes Antifa, they brought uh, about 100 or so gallons up to Flint um, on one of our occupation weekends. Hydrate Detroit is a group that we work with, uh, and they serve the Detroit community, which as of now, over 100,000 people since 2014 have been affected by the Detroit water shutoffs. This is where, um, thanks to the, uh, the, the housing mortgage crisis back in the, the late aughts, um, we had a lot of people in situations where they have to pay these staggering water bills, sometimes like $600, $800 all at once, and like they try to set them up on pay- payment plans, but if you're only getting paid like $16,000 a year, you don't just have $400 lying around to to back pay all of your water bills. And they say any missed payment means six months of no water period. So it's not, it's not like they're being given a reasonable chance to pay this off either. So what Hydrate Detroit does is step one, they legally advocate for these people to get their water turned back on. And second, we do provide direct water relief as well. So um, we do, water is our most common donation at Occupy. We always end up with a little more we need. So those are the two destinations that we send them. And uh, that's, uh, that's one of our biggest projects as far as just Occupy Ice Detroit specifically. Robert, thank you, thank you for taking the time to speak with us on Owens Legal Radio and uh, solidarity and support for your ongoing occupation uh, in Detroit. Thanks much. Appreciate being on the show.